Hey, hey, what's happening, people of Earth? Welcome to another educational and antimicrobial episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, coming at you from Brooklyn, New York. I hope everybody's doing well out there, enjoying your time. As we get closer to summertime, I can just see before me the rolling waves at the Atlantic Ocean, standing on a, a warm beach, licking a popsicle all by myself, thinking about my favorite Charles Mingus record, imagining being able to go out there, get some sun, still stay away from some other people, but finally shed this semi-prison that has been our individual homes. Well, big news this week, my new album, Revenge of the Cool, is out. It was released last Friday on Sunnyside Records. Uh, it's been in the making for about a year now. Well, plus, uh, given I've been writing this music for a little while and studying the approaches and running this band since my time at New England Conservatory back in 2011, 2012, and uh, I'm really happy to get this music out there. I'm glad to get it out to the people. Uh, it feels like a rebirth. It feels like I can get this thing out and really start doing, start a new trajectory, start new, some new projects, and uh, I'm happy to get it to you. I'm really proud of the band. These guys did really great work, and uh, happy, happy to finally put it out. If you'd like to give it a give it a listen, check it out. You can find it on the Sunnyside Bandcamp page at sunnysidezone.com/album/revenge-of-the-cool. Uh, you can also just search for it. I uh, Google it, you'll find it. And you can also find it on all of the other normal platforms. It's the uh, instrumentation uh, is based on the instrumentation from Miles Davis's Birth of the Cool, and it's eight all-new original compositions by myself brought to life by the magnificent members of the band. I uh, hope you'll love it. Give it, a, give it a listen. Check it out. And uh, if I can sell enough copies, I'll even make another album someday. So uh, if you want to purchase it from Bandcamp, it's always a big help. I'm always a big advocate of... Uh, purchasing the musicians' albums rather than just streaming it on Spotify. Although I guess the best of both worlds would be to buy it and then stream it on Spotify. So you get the streams and the purchases. But, you know, it's, it's a little self-serving here, uh, me telling you to buy my album. But if you want to, I promise to use all the money to pay some musicians to make another album that will be even better. All right. Uh, another announcement here today. I've been trying to keep track of the... Uh, various organizations that are able to raise money for jazz musicians in these unusual times. And uh, I know there have been a lot of great organizations out there who have been able to give grants and uh, other monetary support to musicians who may be out of gigs for the next couple of months. Um, so if you want to check out, I found a new one, found another one. I'm sure this has been around for a little while, but just wanted to make, uh, make, it aware, make everybody aware the Jazz Foundation of America has a COVID-19 Musicians Emergency Fund, and you can find that at jazzfoundation.org slash COVID-19 fund. If you've got some extra money coming in, if you've got, you got a day job that you can do from home, and you're still making some money and you want to do what you can to support the musicians, uh, in addition to buying music and uh, whatever else you could do, it's a really great thing if you want to donate to some of these uh, emergency funds for the jazz musicians who are currently out of work indefinitely, thanks to the demon COVID-19. Uh, if you want to check it out, 
Once again, jazzfoundation.org slash COVID-19 fund. Uh, there's been all kinds of good music coming out. People are making new videos. There's new educational material out. A lot of people have a lot of time. Uh, but we're hoping very soon for the, uh, the whole coronavirus operation to die down quickly so that we can get back to making music live. Man, I'll tell you, in relation to my album's release, uh, you, you really don't realize until you don't have it, the emotional and somewhat spiritual power of live music and live performance. It's been something that I've, it's just been a part of my life since the beginning, and uh, certainly for my entire adult life, I've had the opportunity to perform you know, weekly and at least rehearse and play with other musicians in real life. It's one of those things that live music is uh, is really a special thing, and it's it's easy to take for granted when it's around you all the time, but in these times, I found myself really appreciating the opportunity to perform music in real time for an audience. As a matter of fact, I recently discussed the value of being able to create music in real space and real time with my guest this week, the great educator, saxophonist, and composer Mike Teitelbaum. Uh, Mike is the head of the jazz department at Ithaca College, where he's been operating the program for Quite a few years now, I suppose. Let me do this math real quick. 2008, must have been 2008 to, wow, is that right? 12 years, Mike. Something like that. It's been around for a while. Uh, some of you may know that I did my undergrad at Ithaca College. I studied philosophy. I didn't have a music major or music minor, but Mike was good enough to bring me into the programs and, uh, and, and really challenge me to explore the inner workings of my musical mind. Not everyone who is a great musician is a great educator, and not everybody who's a great educator is an amazing performer, but Mike Teitelbaum is one of the rare instances where his musicianship equals his ability to convey this information to his students. Mike has really built up an amazing program at Ithaca, and he's a very open-minded and thoughtful educator. He's always been very warm and encouraging to his students, and he was one of the people that really encouraged me to take a lot of chances in my writing and try out new things. Mike has been an active performer and educator for many years and also spent some time in the world of computer programming. He's had a very interesting path, and I think that his, his life outside of music has really uh, given him a unique perspective on what it is that we all do as musicians. Uh, Mike has been, as I said, leading the Ithaca College jazz program for about, seems like, 12 years now. And uh, he's always getting some really interesting performers in the program, uh, guest artists. He's been running the Ithaca College composition competition for many years. And uh, he's always had really interesting things to say. He's always been an open and welcoming and encouraging force in jazz especially in the upstate New York region. Uh, Mike leads a group called Music Because Music, and he's always writing new pieces for big band and uh, smaller ensembles. He plays primarily alto saxophone, but I've also seen him play bass saxophone in one of his own groups, as well as uh, a number of other instruments, including piano and trumpet. I was really happy that Mike wanted to come on the show to talk to us about his philosophy on music education uh, this is a part of our series on music education in the age of coronavirus, and uh, Mike leading the Ithaca College program, I thought he would have some insight 
into ways of approaching education and performance and the whole jazz art and the art of improvisation in a world where we have to be socially and physically isolated. Uh, it's not Mike's favorite thing, but fortunately we were able to really dig into the dig into the depths on some of the his philosophies on the music and the approach to creating new music. And uh, we touched on it a little bit, how he's been able to handle this particular situation. But he, as with always, he's, he's handled it with optimism and uh, with a warmth and generosity that is uh, rare, rare to see. So thanks again to Mike for joining us. Now, listen to me. Uh, this, uh, the way that we're doing these interviews these days, because we can't be in the same place, is to uh, do everything remote. So we're recording, and in, in very often we'll, both myself and the interviewee will uh, record individual parts, and then I'll put them together later so we get the utmost quality here. And uh, Mike was fortunately be able to do that, but we ran into a little technical difficulty, so uh, about an hour in you might find that the sound changes a little bit, but uh, you'll still be able to hear it loud and clear and no problem, uh, you'll be able to make it through the rest just want to let you know so you're not too surprised. Uh, but anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, we had a great conversation. Always great to catch up with Mike, uh, and you'll have a lot of fun with it. So without further ado, here he is, Mike Teitelbaum. Mike, always good to see you. You're a you're a beacon of warmth and positivity in an uncertain world. Oh wow, thanks, Bobby. I love seeing you too. Miss you, miss you around uh, around these parts. Yep, it's been a little while since I've been to Ithaca, but we were gonna go in March for the Thaw Festival, but uh, that that was the first thing that actually was cut from all this. Oh, it's kind of a I spent my whole winter basically booking a series of shows that were about to start. I was killing myself to try to organize these runs, you know, upstate and whatever. And then it, just in time for the shows, the whole thing, everything got cut. If it makes you feel any better, it really hasn't thought around here. Um, uh, Catherine and I just took a walk like half an hour ago and it started snowing again. Ugh. That's why that's why I had to get so out of Ithaca, man, as soon as I could. <laughs> That's more than I can handle. That's too much psychological turmoil for for me. I think to <laughs> What's swing. What's today? It says May twelfth. Yeah. So it's yeah snowing on May twelfth. Yeah. If it started, if I saw snow outside, man, I'd start to repent pretty quick. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm looking at there's a little too much chaos in the world for like a normal, you know, a normal. Oh come situation. on, you wouldn't actually repent. There's no re there's no repentance for you. I don't know. We'll see. We would see. There's a there's I gotta have a breaking point. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, the theme here is loosely uh, jazz education in an age of of turmoil, <laughs> mild turmoil. But we'll we'll start off with good stuff, and we'll we'll maybe ease our way there briefly. Uh, so you have had a a particularly interesting path from saxophonist to uh, real guy job, normal job, and then back to jazz education. That's true. Yeah, where did circuitous. you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Uh, where did you? Uh, what was the beginning of your? Let's say you started off at school playing saxophone. What was the beginning of your of your musical career? 
Whew, that's a. Um, I mean, do you do you want to count like like little gigs that I did in high school? Well, what got you into it in the first place? You know what's funny is I have a journal that I was required to keep in first grade, and mm-hmm. in my first grade journal, I used to write. Um, I, I remember the teacher. Still remember her name, Mrs. Rieger. Mrs. Rieger would put on the board um, a, a prompt. My favorite thing is my favorite animal is, and then you'd have to finish it and color it in, a, in our little book. I still have this book, and I talked about music a lot. Wow! I had I had records. I had Beatles. I had Bay City Rollers. Um, I just I loved music. I had a reel-to-reel tape re- uh, recorder that I used to love to play with. Um, I had more than one. I feel like I just I would go through them because I would just wear them out. I would record stuff off the radio and I would record my own voice and and um, so I, I really got into that uh, big time as a kid and loved playing saxophone. I played saxophone in um, fifth grade. I think is when I started playing saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I also got into computers, and and that was the the diversion that you talked about before. Is that when I when I needed a, a regular guide job, I had these computer skills that I was able to brush brush up and get back up and running again. Hmm. But um, but yeah, it was really in, it was in high school that I really started taking music seriously. I studied with some great people because uh, I grew up in Rochester. There were great saxophonists around all the time uh, that I got to study with Brian Scanlon. Uh, who's now in the West Coast? Play, he plays in Gordon Goodwin's band. Mm-hmm. Um, was was my saxophone teacher, I think, in eighth grade, and uh, he was phenomenal. I love telling stories about him because he was such a great teacher, and, and he's a phenomenal player too. Let me ask you as a quick aside here. Yeah, what is it? If is there something that you can do to summarize his attitude, or maybe the techniques that he used that were particularly influential? I could. T- you want me to tell you my favorite story about about Brian? I, w- I absolutely do. Okay, so we had a jazz band in my middle school. Uh, Don Coley was our music teacher. We had a jazz band, and I, and I asked him if I could play Barry. So I was playing Barry in this, um, uh, in, in, you know, in seventh grade band or eighth grade band. And I remember we had a tune. I'm not going to remember what it was called, but what I remember was that it was like... Um, And I don't know what happened after that. I just remember that part because I had the Barry part. I feel like I actually went, bah, 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 you know, on a low, low D on Barry, and I just loved mm-hmm. it. And I went to Brian, and I said, I'm trying to figure out this chord. I can't figure out what it is. And I said, uh, the way I described it to him is that it sounded, it sounded minor and major at the same time. And, um, and he said, oh, he said, that's interesting. So let's see if we can, if we can figure out what that, what that chord is. And... Um, so he he uh, he goes to the piano and he plays. I said, "No, no, I I don't think that's the chord." And he said, "Oh, well, did you get your pencil and your notebook paper and write that write this down?" And I was like, "Okay." And he said, "That's a major seventh chord." Okay, um, I'll I'll, I'll write that down. And uh, I said, "But that's not the one." He said, uh, "I know, just write it down anyways." Okay, and then he played this. I said, oh, that's not it either. He said, uh, I know. Um, write, write down, write down um, minor seventh. <laughs> and and he went through this for about five minutes, giving me all these different chords. And at the end, he finally played. Oh, that's the wrong chord. And 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 I said, oh, that's it. That's the chord. And he said, I know that's the one you wanted. I had to teach you all these other chords first. <laughs> sure. So. Um, so I just I loved I, in, in retrospect I love the the pedagogy of that I love the 
you, you know, finding a teaching moment in there, like finding a kid who had a spark and an interest and using that as an opportunity to, to feed more information uh, rather than sure. just the specific information that was asked uh, to like, you know, start a whole thing. And then he told me about the summer camp that they had at Eastman, which I, which I went to even before I started high school. And I was like the lowest of the low. Like I didn't even get into any of the bands that summer, you know, but there were some great players around. Larry Goldings was around that summer and, and mm-hmm. um, uh, some great sax- saxophonists were, were around that summer. And they were all older than me, but I uh, didn't really get to play with them. But I was in like Larry Goldings jazz arranging class. Oh, know? cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've, al- I've always appreciated, too, that uh, the approach of, of really having to understand what it is that you're dealing with rather than just giving a straight answer. And in jazz education, the idea he could have just said, uh, you know, here it is, but it's a, it's you, you, it sticks with you. I mean, you're talking about it now. It sticks with you for years and years to come, and it also gives you the understanding that no matter what age you are, you you have the opportunity to figure it out for yourself. It isn't like it isn't like, you know, uh, inaccessible knowledge that somebody has to give you. There's an there's a possibility that you can just work this stuff out and learn it on your own. Yeah, it's a real it's a real balancing act that that you have to try to find as a teacher. Right, it's like you wanna, you, you wanna, you wanna provoke, um, you wanna, you know, um, give some information. You wanna give some knowledge, but you also wanna sort of, um, I can't think of a good phrase, but um, sort of, you know, tickle the, the interest. You know, sure. sort of get it, get it percolating, and get 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 things moving so that people, you know, get the curiosity going uh, in a student. And I think that's what that's as as a teacher now. It's one of the things I appreciate about that was that it is really. You know, he didn't just look past that opportunity to get the interest going. Sure. You know, he, he took he took that opportunity and came up with a really cool cool way of doing it, knowing that I knew absolutely nothing. Like, I actually wound up writing a big band chart um, without a score. I actually wrote a big band chart for my middle school jazz band with just parts. <laughs> Was that like some kind of Mozart thing or something? You're writing the whole <laughs> alto part first, and then you go on to the... I just, I didn't even know about writing a score. Like I had to sort of learn about transposition, you know, to do it. And I, sure. you know, I don't even, I probably still have it around somewhere actually. That would be pretty funny to check out. It's, it's no substitute for that either. It's just trying to figure it out. Just, all right, go for it, man. You know, I want to write something for my, my school band. I'm just going to give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah. And actually the great thing about my middle school band director, um, um, Don Coley was that when I finally did it, I finally wrote it. And I was like, "Hey, can we play this tune?" He said, "Okay, I'll play Barry. You go and direct them." Amazing. Yeah. I'm like really? <laughs> so I stood up and I was, he was like, "Yeah, it's your tune. You do it." Yeah. <laughs> I've never done that before, but I have to tell you that the the feeling of putting something in front of a band, even a seventh grade, you know, seventh eighth grade band, and having them realize it in front of me. And having it come to life was a feeling that I think I'll never forget. It was that that first time of like, wow, I've actually created this thing. It's now it was in my head. Now there it is in front of me with live human beings making it. And um, uh, it was yeah, it was that. I think that that provided the fodder for many years of study. For sure, yeah, I can understand. You get addicted to that the the the, the concept of having something in your mind and then having it appear before you in real life. It's almost like a transcendent thing it's the kind of thing that'll set you on the path to darkness for the rest of your life (laughs) (laughs) oh it's not darkness (laughs) i told you i tell you what though i mean i think i I think one of the 
one of the difficulties or one of the challenges that we have to overcome with the with the the, the technology like Finale. I mean, I I love Finale. I've been using it for years and years, and I had the benefit of writing for bands where I didn't have a tool like that that automatically would play the note back the moment you clicked it or the moment you hit the play button, you sort of hear an approximation of it. I had to approximate it in my head for so long or at the, at the piano or, or you know, what, what, what am I going to imagine this to sound like? And there is a danger, I think, of, of relying too much on, the, oh, I'll just push the play button and that'll be, that'll be how it sounds. Right. You know? I agree. Um, yeah. Especially because so much of jazz music is the improvisational element of it that it's easy to either overwrite or underwrite or change things around depending on what the MIDI drums are going to sound like in your playback. When right. if you just were to hear it in your head, you would recognize that the guy is probably going to take, you know, whoever's, whoever's playing drums is going to take the, the liberty to create a, a uh, you know, the, the vibe underneath the thing that you don't get from listening to a MIDI bass player, a MIDI drummer hack through your arrangement or whatever. <laughs> so this leaves us. So so this sounds like it set the fire. You've you set the fire under you, and you you continued on. So now you're into high school. Uh, continued to play. Yep. And ended up at Eastman. I did. I did. I, I was from Rochester, and I knew the school, and and um, um, I I just loved the place, and I loved the people that I had met there, and I was so inspired all all through high school. The amount of time I spent there, and I did look at other schools too, but. Um, it seemed like a, it seemed like a good fit for my my learning style and my um, my interest in becoming a teacher. Also, you know, to be able to still still do some teaching. I taught you know some local local kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you were teaching privately. Them, yeah, I was teaching some private lessons. Then I taught in the summer program that I had gone to when I was in high school. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, some of some of my students um, have gone on to be uh, really successful. Like, uh, you know, um, Christy Norder. Are you familiar with that name? I know that name. Yeah. I, I, Emily probably knows her better, yeah, because um, she, yeah, she's she in, the, in the Reed world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Christy's been doing great. She's been playing shows and 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 working in in New York. And you probably run into her at some point. But yeah, she was a student of mine, you know, back when I was uh, in college, and she was just tearing it up back then. So hmm. pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah, it feels good. So yeah, so I went to college at Eastman and stayed there and did my master's as well. What were I your just, degrees met- in? I don't want to get into that. I don't want to have to. Yeah, I'm not trying to interrogate you or anything. No, no, it's okay. So um, what was interesting is at the time, they didn't have an undergraduate major in jazz studies. Okay. So it was in saxophone performance. Um, the great thing was that uh, Ray Ricker was the saxophone teacher, and he was a, a fantastic uh, a clarinetist and saxophonist and woodwind doubler, as well as a great classical saxophonist and jazz saxophonist. And he just, he just didn't uh, think of it as a, any sort of distinction. It's like if you play saxophone, you have to be able to play you know, um, Bach transcriptions and you have to be able to play solo literature and you have to be able to play in a big band. You have to be able to play in small groups and, and you have to be able to play Coltrane changes and just, you know, do, do everything. Sure. So that's how, that's the approach he took. It wasn't, uh, um, uh, oh, these are, these are my classical students and these are my jazz students. It's just, you're a saxophonist and you have to be able to play everything. Sure. I imagine in undergrad too, that's a particularly useful approach because you really need that reinforcement of the technique and the specifics of just executing that you might not get well you know you get it in jazz too but it's maybe a different thing if you're looking at it as an all-encompassing uh operation yeah i think i think there's um i'm i i i thoroughly believe that you know the style of of music you play is just it's just that it's a style 
And I mean, I love, I love playing jazz, and I love the approach that um, the, the 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 process of making jazz. I love how it is different, uh, a, a a process because it's inherently creative and all the things that we could talk about for for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. But it is um, to to sort of take this you know saxophonistic approach of we just have to learn to play the instrument and we have to learn to get a good sound. And we have to learn to play in tune, and then at the same time, of course, we're going to go and play play in uh, quartets and trios and big bands and and we're going to improvise and we're going to play jazz and so um yeah i think there was there was definitely something to that and it's 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 to my um i don't know it's it's not my personal shame but there i do feel i do feel a sense of of shame about the fact that uh, i'm under the impression that the the day that they announced <laughs> announced is the wrong term, but the day they began a jazz studies major at Eastman, uh, that the quality of the saxophone playing went down significantly. Really? Um, yeah. Which I, I, I think is, is really unfortunate. It's an, uh, um, I don't know if it had to happen that way or just did. Uh, but, uh, there was a, there was a period of time, I think when, when, um, jazz saxophone majors early on in that program came in and just didn't have, Either didn't have the desire to to um, build those kind of basic um, saxophonistic skills, or um, I think sometimes there's a sense among you know jazz players that that kind of in depth study is not for them; that it's for some other type of musician that sure. you don't have to put in that kind of work. And um, I'm I'm not generalizing to all musicians or anything. It's no, of course. I, it's just. Um, uh, you know, there are there are some people who I think you know um, take the um, the mindset of I can play whatever I want, so therefore why do I have to worry about playing someone else's music or, or conforming to someone else's ideals and and um, without without ever seeking the balance between the two because there is a balance. I mean, of course, there's you know if you're ever trying to collaborate with anybody, there ha- you have to re- you have to reach a balance. You have to be able to play with other people and and play their music the way they want it to, just like if you're going to play in a classical uh, realm, you have to be able to play in tune with the other people. Sure. And, you know, I, th- I think of it as a trumpet player. There, there may be an element of it, too, which is just maybe a diverse uh, set of... A, a diverse skill set that you have to learn. So uh, let me give you an example. Like, a, a lead trumpet players oftentimes can improvise, but oftentimes can't improvise as well because there has to be a certain amount of time in your day dedicated to playing high notes and if you're an improviser it's a different thing like i i'm always struggling with that balance of you know okay well there's a lot involved in just being a creative improviser or a composer or whatever and yet at the same time there's no substitute for for keeping your chops up and being able to play you can't show up to the gig no matter how much of a genius you are you can't show up to the gig and crash and burn or else you're done you know but you're yeah. a multifaceted character yourself. I mean, how do you think about? Do you think now about the balancing of you know your sax your your personality as a saxophone player versus as a composer versus as a teacher? Do you have to dedicate amounts of time in a day to, to covering this ground, or do you feel like one gets neglected, or how do you do it? Because you also learn how to play trumpet like a crazy person, and then the, all the other things that you're doing, and then you were a computer programmer for years. So how do you balance this stuff? Actually, I, I, I like to say that for many years, trumpet was my strongest double. 
because um, <laughs> I had trumpet trumpet playing friends all through middle school. So and, and we used to listen to Maynard Ferguson. So you know, in like seventh to eighth grade, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great to play like Maynard Ferguson? He came as a, he was a guest artist at a local festival, and, and so by like eighth grade, I was playing trumpet just as much as I was playing saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the difficulty with answering that question, Bobby, is that uh, I mean. The short answer is yes. You have to, you know, um, you have to find a balance, right? But I think really the trick is, as it, as in so many things, it's not, it's not the product; it's the process, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the process is what's important. Sure. So the process of seeking the balance is what's important. As soon mm. as you think you've achieved the balance, something's gonna throw a wrench in your balance, and you're gonna have to rejigger it. Sure. You know. Um, I feel like that's kind of a Zen statement. <laughs> <Somehow>. <laughs> it, it, well, I think, I think it is. I mean, um, you know, um, you know, you're, you're a newly married guy and you may think you have this great balance of like, Oh, like we have this great relationship and we have this great, you know, pl- we're in, we're in New York and we're playing gigs and, and then all of a sudden there's a global pandemic and it completely <laughs> changes your whole, your whole balance. Or with a lot of people, you know, it's like you've got this, this, this life, you know, with, with two people and everything is great. And then the next thing you know, you have a kid. And that completely throws the whole balance off into a different way. So it's like there's, there's never a time when you, when you find the balance. It's just seeking the balance and, and, and being aware that you're never going to find it. There's never going to be a perfect balance. You just have to keep looking for it and, and, and constantly be rejiggering it. Sure. So that's, that's what I've found. I remember I was, I was talking to a student um, a couple of years ago about this, and she was just in tears about something, uh, about a situation of, uh, you know, with some, someone that she had tried to help and, and, that, and that was, she felt like she wasn't doing enough to help this person. And, and, um, and I just said, uh, she was worried that she would never be able to have enough time to do all the things. Uh, or or to to find this kind of balance, and I said, "You're right. You never will find the balance." So, if if I were to tell you that when you get, you know, I think she was sort of implying that, oh, five, ten years from now, like I'll find the balance, and I'm like, "Nope." You're, you're, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty you, good advice. <laughs> you will never find the balance. I said, but maybe you can find peace in that, and then just seek to find the balance. Try to find it. Try to rejigger the best you can. And then as soon as you th- think you'll have it, it'll get messed up again. So, so just try to remember that it will get messed up <laughs> and, and you just have to, you have to try to rebalance whatever that is. And yes, because I think my interests are so wide, you know, I've always wanted to, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to compose and I wanted to play and I liked playing flute. I really enjoyed that. And I liked playing trumpet. I really, that was really fun. And I loved being in school. And I loved teaching and I liked all these things. And I, I think actually I had, I did have one of these like very conscious realizations at some point as in high school, I actually, I took trumpet lessons with some pretty heavy hitters. I took trumpet lessons with a guy named Tom Drake, who I think he's in the St. Louis symphony now, just like stunningly good trumpet player, you know, classical trumpet player. Hmm. I had a great, great lesson from him once that, that, that really, I love to tell a story about that, but, um, but I would, I, so I would play trumpet and I loved it. I, f- I would feel good. I feel like I, I sort of had a different voice, but it was still me. And I could, you know, I love playing, working on Clifford Brown transcriptions and Miles Davis transcriptions. I would try to play my Charlie Parker transcriptions on trumpet and, and vice versa. I'd try to play Miles transcriptions on saxophone. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then I would have like a project 
right? Like, um, you know, there's a guest artist coming through and I want to write a chart for the guest artist. So I'm like, well, I got to just, I got to just do nothing else, but I'm going to stay up all night and I'm going to write this chart. It's going to take me three days. I'm going to write this big band chart. And so that'd be three days where I just didn't really practice because all I was doing was writing this chart. And then my trumpet chops would be a disaster. And then my saxophone chops were like, oh, I can get those back pretty quickly. Saxophone's just an easier instrument to play. So um, at least I think it is. Maybe it's just worked better with me. I think it is. I think it is. (laughs) I'm allowed to say this, No offense, I love the saxophone. I mean, but it's it's not as physical. It's not as physically demanding. Um, There's not uh, as many people getting hernias or having strokes because of the saxophone. (laughs) So I could get my my saxophone chops back right away. So I made a conscious decision. I'm like, well, if I'm going to be this diverse and I'm going to enjoy doing all these things, I can't be a trumpet major. Sure. I just, I was like, I thought about it and I just said, that's not going to work. I have to, I have to major on an instrument that I can put away for a couple of days. And while I'm doing this writing, you know, and, and uh, so it, it, it worked. Yeah. And you got to make those calls sometimes to find the balance where you say, all right, well, there's got to be a priority thing. There's only so many hours in the day. Right. What'd you do in grad school? Um, I did, uh, Eastman has a program where they have uh, master's degrees in the, the jazz program. They have a writing emphasis and a performing emphasis. So because I did the performance undergrad, I did the writing master's degree. Mm-hmm. And that's when Fred Sturm had just started there. So I got to work with Fred for a year. Okay. Pretty good. Was, was, yeah. uh, was Rayburn right there when you were there? Wasn't he there? I was, I was basically um, in the last group of people who got to work with Ray. And they had a, they had a memorial for Ray some years ago. And I was really the youngest person there. And I realized that everybody else had stuck because he was largely, a, uh, he taught graduate programs. You know, he taught the graduate writing program. Mm-hmm. Everyone had studied with him as a grad student. I actually studied with him as a high school student because oh, they wow. had this, this program called Arranger's Holiday, <clears throat> uh-huh. um, which uh, he taught and Manny Album taught, um, where three weeks in the summer they would bring in a guest artist, and they uh, they had two different arranging classes, like a, a beginning class and an advanced class, and you had two hours of class a day, and then in the afternoon, there would be reading sessions for three solid weeks of just class writing sessions, class writing sessions. You just basically went to class, and then you wrote all evening, and then you'd bring in the charts the next day. Wow. And uh, and it was great. So I remember I had I'd already been to the summer camp for a couple of summers for high school students, but I was really, you know, I had already taken their arranging class for a couple of summers, and and it was sort of time to move on, and, and someone suggested I could take this arranger's holiday. And I was, you know, sort of the youngest person in that. I didn't discover until later that I had actually gotten graduate credit for that course that I took, you know, like as a junior in high school. Because then when I when, <laughs> That's when amazing. I when I when I went to go do my master's degree, and I sort of I met with a met with someone, and they they looked at my transcript. They're like, "Well, you already got four credits towards your master's." I'm like, "I do." Like, when? Like, what? <laughs> when, did I, when did I do that? And they're like, oh, like 1985. <laughs> That's a trip. Yeah. yeah. I, was like, I didn't remember right. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I had gotten to work with, with Ray uh, and, you know, got a couple of private lessons and um, got to uh, sort of get his, his take on professionalism. And um, it wasn't always easy. Uh, you know, he, he was pretty intense, but definitely took approach of this is how a professional behaves. This is how professional acts in a studio and recording studio and, and it was it was all meant to, to really be very um professional training sure yeah his book inside the score is still the best book that i i have on big band arranging 
I still use it for my arranging class. Yeah, maybe yep. where I got it actually. It might have been the first. It might have been where I got it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Did you just go straight from uh, grad school to New York? No, um, I went from from grad school. I finished my master's quickly because I had already had some credit and I spent some time in the summers. I basically did like one year and two summers, and sort of compressed it into one year, about fourteen months essentially. And then I stayed in Rochester for a year. And um, I was lucky, I actually got to do some, some teaching at Eastman the next year. I got to teach some oral skills classes because I had taught oral skills as a graduate assistant. So I did that for a while. And then, then I got a job at Florida A&M University. I applied for a, a jazz teaching job, uh, teaching jazz saxophone, and got it. So the next thing you know, I moved down to Tallahassee and taught jazz saxophone at FAMU. Pretty good. Now, is this the tale that you were doing a? I, I want you to. I want you to cover something that I remember you telling me, but I can't remember the specifics. Okay. Uh, where you were doing a competition someplace and you played the music of Thelonious Monk. <laughs> was that was that the link that and that, that's you remember well. Yeah. Right, well, what, what, what's the tale here? Because I think it's a. I think it's an illustrative and uh, and kind of an interesting approach. It's a little long. You don't mind the long-winded. I don't tale. care, man. We got we got plenty. Of t- we got endless time here. This di- these digital formats, we're not going to run out of tape. It's all just they're not gonna, the tape's not going to go. Th- 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 you know, at the, uh, it does. There's a much bigger problem. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, we'll get error messages on the screen. You know, yeah, <laughs> you have run of out tape. of memory. Um, yeah. So so I had uh, yeah. So the beginning of the story is that I think as a senior in in uh, in college, I had applied to a jazz saxophone competition sponsored by NASA. Uh, the NASA, the uh, like sh- shooting people into space, NASA. Yes, no, not that NASA. <laughs> no, um, the North American Saxophone Alliance, NASA. Okay, um, they still are called NASA, and uh, North American Saxophone Alliance had a jazz competition as part of their uh, part of their conference, and you sent a tape in, and they took three finalists, and uh, I got to be one of the finalists, and another buddy of mine from Eastman was a, another finalist, and then there was a third finalist. I think he was from North Texas, and. Both the other guys were great players, and and it was um, we got along really well, and it wasn't you know it wasn't a, um, a bad situation between us. the The rules of the contest were that um, we had to basically prepare a twenty minute set, and we were all gonna, we were going to play our twenty minute set. They were providing a rhythm section. It was a rhythm section from the military band that was stationed there. I think it was in Fort Myer. I don't remember. I don't remember which which band the rhythm section came from, but. Um, and at the time, I was really into Thelonious Monk, so I, I sort of prepared a whole set of Thelonious Monk tunes. The other requirement, though, was that we had to play Stella by Starlight. That was it was like everyone had to play Stella by Starlight, and then the rest of the tunes you chose yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, so because I was so into Monk, I uh, sort of put together. I don't want to call it arranged. I, I in in retrospect, it was a little bit. Um, highfalutin, <laughs> maybe a little. Um, I don't know what what I could say about it, except it it it, it wasn't great. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I put together a version of um, uh, Stella by Starlight for which uh, it was meant to be in the style of Thelonious Monk. Okay, and and I specifically was meant to be like the Thelonious Monk tune Skippy. Which actually was the same harmony that Monk used for T for two. Okay, um, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first chord was um, uh, was 
you know, was A flat seven, A flat 13, flat nine. exactly how it went basically sure. the, the chords just went around a uh circle of fifths and and then um just like skippy for the last you know in the last four bars it's, they started moving in quarter notes rather than in half notes okay rhythm section did not know what to make of this at all <laughs> they were like you know they, they just expected to play stella by starlight and i'm handing them lead sheets for stella by starlight with completely different changes and anyway it did not go very well um <laughs> The uh, the the other tunes I played, I guess they were they were okay. Uh, you know, I did a, a maybe "Ask Me Now" the monk ballad. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a blues. Gosh, maybe I also did um, um, "In Walk Bud" or something like that. Sure. So, play my set. The other people play theirs. I think I must have gone first or second. So I played my twenty minutes. I walked around, and. I walked into the back of the auditorium to listen, and then when the other players were done, it was it was in an auditorium, and, and there was an audience, right? Because it was a big conference, so there was probably two hundred people in the audience. Mm-hmm. So afterwards, I walked from there into the hallway behind the auditorium, or you know, front of the auditorium, basically where the doors were, and everybody was filing out. And I distinctly remember standing there, you know, my suit and tie, and, and with my saxophone. And everybody filing out, literally like looking past me, <laughs> so they didn't have to make eye contact. So I realized that they just they hated my playing so much that they didn't they they couldn't even muster up a thank you for coming, you know, like sure. thank you for driving six hours to Virginia, <laughs> um, to come here. Yeah, and so I I stood there just you know feeling sorry for myself and looking like an idiot for about ten minutes, mm-hmm. and then Pat Meehan, a uh, classical saxophone teacher at Florida State who just retired a couple of years ago, um, uh, walked up to me and he said, hey, Mike, my name is Pat. I'm the saxophone teacher at Florida State. I just want to tell you, I'm paraphrasing here, but I just want to tell you that I really appreciate that you didn't try to win the contest. You just tried to make music and, and you put together a musical set that was meaningful and musical and it showed what you were all about. I heard who you were and it was... Um, it was a great musical. It was a great set of jazz. And he said, I don't care who wins the competition. He said, anytime you want to come down to Florida state, you're more than welcome in any capacity whatsoever. And he was the only person who really said anything to me afterwards. Uh-huh. And I didn't even think about it because it was, it was polite. I felt like it was polite, but I didn't really get the depth of it until later. <laughs> you know, I didn't get sure. the, like that. This really meant something that someone would actually say that, you know, he's, I didn't realize that, that's just not the kind of thing that people say, you know? Right. You really have to, yeah, he has to be paying attention and really care about it. Yes. It's, be, it's um, better than a, sounds great, man. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I, didn't care if, I didn't care that people didn't lie. Like, I wouldn't want them to lie and say, oh, that was great. Sure. I, but I, it would have been nice for them to say thank you for coming. Yeah, I get it. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, fast forward three or four years, whenever, whenever it was that I, so if that was like 90... 90 or 91, and I played for the job in 93. Yeah, three, four years later. Um, I got the job, and then I did. I found out from the guy who hired me that he wasn't a saxophonist, so he had sort of showed the, the you know, 
list of names to Pat because across, uh, you know, across the railroad tracks and, the, you know, from FAMU to Florida State is the other side of town. I didn't even make this connection that he showed him and, and he apparently, you know, saw my name and said, oh, that's someone you should take a second look at. So sure. I think that's how I got f- to the shortlist, basically, was that he remembered me from the from the thing. Because you had chosen to do something distinctive, because you don't chosen to d- follow your own path in some respects. That's what I take from this. That's what I exactly what I take from it is that had I chosen to try to impress and play fast and works up work up a really sort of chopsy thing, maybe I could have won the contest. I don't know. Who knows? The other players were really good too. So yeah, I don't I don't take that for granted. But I could have tried harder to win. Instead, I really did just try to like say, Well, this is what I'm studying right now. This is who I am. I'm studying monk. I'm gonna play a bunch of monk tunes. Sure. And, but in, um, in that in my mind, that's the that's the that's what makes jazz music jazz music or improvised music or creative music in in whatever capacity is the idea that what you're going for there may be technical facility is a means to an end but the end is being able to create your own is to be able to express your own viewpoints amen brother even if that is Thelonious Monk you know what I always think about is I think it's I feel like if Thelonious Monk entered the Thelonious Monk competition nowadays, like if he came back from the grave, like you would, he'd lose for sure. They'd be like, what is this? He'd crash and burn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But because he did his own thing, he's become such a, a monumental icon in you know, American music. It's really true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we can't say that for sure because you know, they have different judges, different years, and who knows? Maybe, you know, I have another sure. funny story about a contest judging, um, which is... Um, you want to hear the story? This is go, sort go of semi-related. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a contest at the CU Boulder, Colorado University in Boulder, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a we had a group. My buddy Corey Combs, who's a wonderful um, bassist, and he really turned me on to a lot of free jazz, Ornette Coleman, and and free improvisation. Mm-hmm. He put together a group that was uh, me on alto, tenor sax. Aaron Drake, who's now a mouthpiece maker, Curtis Pivert, trombone, and Corey played bass. And it was a quartet. That was it. Just three horns and bass. And oh, we wow. did a whole we did a whole bunch of Ornette Coleman tunes and original tunes that Corey had written and sort of his group. Mm-hmm. We applied to this. Um, they had a, a small group jazz competition at CU Boulder. And you applied as a group. And they took three finalist groups. And the three finalists got you know some travel money to go out there and perform. And uh, it was actually really cool. Art Landy was was um, one of the judges, and he also was a clinician. I don't know if you know Art Landy's playing at all. He's like a just a wonderful improviser. He's like sort of a guru of of creative music in the Denver area. Okay, he's really been an inspirational for a lot of people. His clinic was great, and it was really fun. Really, uh, I play just played duo with him, and um, anyhow. Uh, we go and we play, and and the the two other bands, the all three bands that played were just really good, but so completely different. And I think what people felt like at the end was like, there's no way we can judge one band against the other because we we did this, you know, like Ornette Coleman free jazz kind of kind of tunes and and original tunes. Another band did sort of an, an electric thing, mm-hmm. and another band did sort of a hard bop thing, and. Uh, I don't even remember who won, but what I remember hearing about was that the judges were supposed to bring back a, a verdict and like announce it at the at the evening concert, and they just took hours. And uh, the story that I heard sort of through the grapevine was that they argued with each other to, to like, like not to the death, but as as close as you can get as like, I absolutely refuse to let that band win. And then this other person, <laughs> I absolutely refuse to let that band win. And um, it just, apparently it wound up with like, 
you know, a couple of guys like absolutely hating each other and like refusing to talk to each other anymore. And one of them just walked out and that was the end of it. <laughs> so <laughs> by default, we, we, by default, we didn't win. And, um, and then Corey wound up going the next year, uh, also, and that time he put together like a hard bop band, and that year it was a different set of judges, and the more creative group won. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Man, that's, funny, that's huh? the end of the story. Is that is that you just you just never you uh, never know never yeah, know. But it's... Although one of the recordings that I got that we played at that I have a you know I got a great cassette recording of our set, and I actually took one of our we did like a free ballad, and I took the free ballad and I turned it into a big band chart. I just transcribed the whole thing like four minute thing. Oh, interesting. And turned it into a, orchestrated it as a big band chart. I may vaguely remember this. Did, did we ever pl- play it? Do you still have it? Yeah, I do. We might have. And actually, uh, it was, what's I the did name of the for, tune? It's called "Free." Oh, okay. It we, sounds familiar. Uh, I, that we might have done that when I was in it. Yeah, I I wrote it for the BMI Jazz Composers thing. It got performed at their at the concert. Oh, is that right? That's just something else. Yeah. I was just thinking yeah. about a similar concept recently. The idea of taking a long form free improvisation and trying to orchestrate it. It's kind of a fascinating concept. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, how do you view competition in Jazz. What's its role? I think. I think in there's nothing inherently wrong with competition. Mm-hmm. I think, I think to deny that competition exists or that it plays any role is would be f- folly. Um, but I think there's. Like many things, there's positive versions of competition, and then there's destructive versions of competition. Okay. Um, and I think maybe the the outcome the outcome shouldn't be viewed as the important part. Like if you you know if if like you went to the monk competition. And you didn't win, but you met a bunch of great people, and it was like a, it, it was in the spirit of I know there's this competition here, but wow, that that person can really play, and that person has a really unique take, and the judges are like, you know, doing it in a way that feels feels supportive in some way, you know, and like mm-hmm. even this this competition in Colorado, like even the fact that the, that apparently these judges just got so mad at each other felt like they at least someone there got what we did and like actually like even though we were doing something completely different they they got the gist of it they got the spirit of it which which was sort of heartening so um i don't think there's no there's no easy answers to that but i think i think you you know it like when you're when you're in a competitive environment that you that you feel can be positive and supportive you feel it and when you're in a competitive environment that doesn't feel supportive doesn't feel like it's there for any sort of good purpose you feel that too um, sure and i'm sure that as you as a as a resident of new york you get to feel that a lot you know because you get both sides of that probably every day sure for sure you get the sense that, that you get the competitive sense of like there are some people who feel that there are only so many gigs and we're all competing for this small slice of pie and then you get another set of people that believe that, well, the more people we bring into it, the greater the creativity that we can build things from nothing and we can create new things where there was nothing before, like Emily is doing with the, you know, and I'm sure you're doing the same thing in all sorts of ways with with your with your non-ad and you can create something out of nothing. And 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 of course you have to you have to compete on some level. There, you know, but 
But um, if it's really more about creating something new and being creative and and um, and the spirit of meeting people and collaboration, then the competition can be a constructive thing. Sure. Am it, I evading the question? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. I think the I think your point that the process of it is really what's important. I think if you went into it and you were like, you know, you get back at the end of the competition and you like, you know, you you break your baton in half and throw it at the saxophone <laughs> section, you go, you you're worthless. This will never be amount to you know whatever. Like then you've missed the whole thing. But if you go into the competition and say, all right, here's like this is what we would do in high school is we go to do the, like the Berkeley competition in Boston. And it was and 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 uh, our director David Schumacher would be like, all right, here's your job is to go around and check out the other solid high school bands. And the point was really more to try to gain some inspiration from hearing people who could play than you know who are our peers than it was about winning the thing necessarily. But I guess it's a it's a perk to win, you know what I mean? I guess. But I've always thought it, you know, it, it, to me it's. It's a little bit of a tricky comparison because in, in a college band or a high school band or whatever doing um, a competition, you know it's a competition. Whereas in New York, it's funny because I think some people – it depends on the context. And I've met you know countless amazing, personable, creative people and I, I, whatever. It's not, I'm not trying to be negative. But there are some people that, that see it as a competition and other people in the same context don't know it's a competition. So it's a little bit of a different thing. You know what I mean? And then it becomes about mm-hmm. like – it really becomes more about okay, well, here's what I'm doing. I'm gonna try. It's it's more maybe akin to what you're talking about with the felonious monk concept in some regard. Is it's like, well, what is it that I'm trying to bring out of my? I have a group. I, I mean, well, let me give you an example. When I'm playing with my group, I want people who are able. I want to play with people who are able to play inside music and also play free music and who are comfortable in both of those worlds. So I might I might meet somebody at a jam session who's just absolutely killing, but is not. But can't you know? Isn't maybe is a little bit more, um, you know? Sounds very specific, like sounds exactly like Coltrane or something. But maybe doesn't, maybe like early '60s Coltrane and not mid '60s Coltrane. (laughs) You know, whatever. (laughs) Like, or or there are people who will hear different musicians and say, "Well, that's I want to play with that person because they have a particular voice." That's a very. I guess you could argue that there's some competition in that because you want to be the creative person or something. But it's a different thing than being like, you know, I don't know. it's not like we sat we sit around and go, well, who's better, you know, Sonny Rollins or Dexter Gordon or whatever. Like, if, if you do, it's only for, a, you know, a laugh. <laughs> but it's not the same thing as like a concerto competition or something where I think there's probably more precision to the to the nature of it. Have you, uh, I'm sure you've seen this article, uh, but I, I send it to all my students nowadays. And I can't remember if I, if I would have sent this to you back when you were, uh, when you were a student at IC, there's that article by Brad Meldow called um, "Ideology: Burgers and Beer." Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah sum lo- it up for me. I forget exactly the specifics. Um, I, I, I hope I don't. I hope I don't sum it up just terribly badly. Um, the, I think the crux of it is that when he was coming up in New York, um, you know, he had these these great friends, and they would go out and and have burgers and beer at this place after the gig, and they would play this little game like little matching name pairs, you know, um, you know, uh, where they would say like, you know, who's better. And, uh, they would say, you know, um, uh, Charlie Parker or Charlie Brown, <laughs> you know, like goofy, goofy things. Right. Yeah. And, and just, it, it was a joke, you know, they were just you know, joking around with, 
Um, and if you see the article, you see some of the name pairs they came up with. And some of yeah. them were just totally ludicrous. I feel like, and I feel then, like the Sonnies were in there, something like Sonny Rollins versus Sonny Stitt or something well, like that. Well, apparently that's what started the big argument, okay. is that it turned deadly serious, <laughs> was that it was Sonny Rollins versus Sonny Stitt. And it, and it wound up sort of stratifying the group into people for whom um, Sonny Stitt was like the pinnacle of creativity because he just showed up and played. He just blew with no sort of preconception. He was just was a great blower. And and then the sort of other side of the of the table uh, said that, no, there's no way that Sonny Stitt is as great as Sonny Rollins because Sonny Rollins has this whole compositional vibe and, and they're in the same, uh, they, you know, they lump people like Monk and Duke Ellington in this, this realm of great, you know, with, sure. with Sonny Rollins because, because he spins out all these motives that's in a very sort of compositional way. And then the rest of the article discusses sort of how, how you can't, you can't really have one without the other. You know, both of these things are, are, are necessary. We need, we need that spirit of just showing up and blowing. And at the same time, we need the sort of composerly sense. It's just kind of, you know, two sides of the same coin. It's like sure. two parts of your brain. Yeah. And, um, so I just, I love the, uh, I love the dichotomy of it. I love thinking about all the different um, impacts that that, that that has. Sure. And I, I think that brings to mind, too, all of these other kind of false dichotomies that we have, like the... In, I, I can understand schools, you know, and I, I totally get, like, you know, there might be a different thing between being a Maynard Ferguson-style trumpet player and being a Chet Baker-style trumpet player. Like, I get that there's, a different, there's different vibes in there, but, like, the Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, you know, like... Uh, rivalry in some respects or whatever or like these ideas that like you're one thing or the other and i think it's it may be i feel like it's easy to fall into the into the my the the, the way of thinking that's like oh I, i'm supposed to follow one of these paths but you can follow any number of paths that was something that that hung me up is i'm like well i like all these different things what path am i supposed to choose it's like well my path is the combination of all of these disparate concepts you know you can ha you can like anthony braxton and chet baker at the same time you know there's nothing wrong with being on two ends of the same thing you know yeah there is sort there there definitely can be a danger with like uh you know sort of associating yourself with some some air quotes school you know it's like oh i'm in this school therefore i have to follow this this path and i think that's what i've admired about you over the years is that uh, i love your your dedication to to some things, but then your your interest in a wide range of of inputs from all different you know musics and extra musical kinds of things that get into your thinking and into your music and um, that's what I've admired about you for a long oh, time. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's gotten me into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> it might have been I doubt, easier. To I doubt. Think, I doubt any real think, trouble. Well, not any real <laughs> trouble. I try to avoid that, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. But, uh, so, but like, a, yeah, go on. with the story about the you know my that that saxophone competition, it's like. But if that's who you, if that's what you bring to the table, Bobby, then whenever you meet people, like you may not, you may not appeal to everybody out in the world. But when you do find people who you appeal to, like if your musicianship and your vibe and your whole way of thinking, if, if that appeals to people, you know that that's going to be because they really do get you and like you and like your music and like what you're all about. And those are going to be much better collaborators for you ultimately than people who are just looking for someone to emulate player X or Y or Z. Sure. That's kind of a high risk, high reward approach, too, though. I mean, you think thinking back to the Thelonious Monk as an example, like, I don't know what was going I don't think anybody knows what was going through his mind at the time, but he had to really commit. I mean, he was he was Thelonious Monk like no. I mean, he was as Thelonious Monk as he could possibly be. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like Thelonious Monk was as Thelonious Monk as you could be. That's how true. I mean, he really committed. He could play anything. That's what I love so much about him. Is I, I've said semi jokingly that he's the best jazz musician because he's the guy that you can hear two bar. He can play T for two or his own zany compositions, or he can play whatever, and you know in instant that it's Thelonious Monk and it's an amazing sound that he that he came up with but nobody sounds like him I mean you can see the roots to Duke Ellington and you can see the roots to James B. Johnson or you know you can understand this but he can't especially I mean he's surrounded by Bud Powell's and and everybody Art Tatum's and everybody else and he's going to sound like Thelonious Monk and that's why we're talking about him right now but at the time you know he could have said all right I'm just going to be I'm going to sound exactly like you know everybody wants me to sound or I want to, I mean, that takes a certain leap of faith that, you know, people are going to be down for what you're coming up with, even if it's, you know, unconventional. It's so true. You're absolutely right. You're high, I like your, your way of describing it as high risk, high reward. Um, you know, of course, yeah, there, you wouldn't get anywhere without, without taking a, a bit of a risk. I was, uh, just the other day, someone asked me about if there was any interesting, uh, like, particularly compelling Charlie Parker recordings or like really interesting like blues recordings of Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. And I had just listened to one um, and I I hadn't fully heard it because I was actually listening to it and I sort of fell asleep while I was listening to it. So I went back and listened to it again. It's called Funky Blues. And it's, it's uh, one of these like jams. I think it's, I think it's on the Verve collection and the, the Verve collection is huge, right? There's like 10 CDs. There's a lot of music there. And I've, I'd, I had the Verve collection back in high school. So I had listened to a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And this was not one of the ones I had ever spent a lot of time listening to. And now, you know, in my 50s, I, I, I pulled it out again and was just blown away by the fact that on this blues, the first soloist is Johnny Hodges. And then the next soloist is Charlie Parker. <laughs> That's a trip. And I'm not aware of them ever playing together uh, mm-hmm. other than this one recording. Maybe there, there are other ones that I can't think of, but I don't, I'm not aware of any off the top of my head. And to hear the difference between these two giants of the saxophone. And, and then Benny Carter is also on this recording. Mm-hmm. So three giants of the saxophone, of, of specifically of the alto saxophone, and just how completely different they went. But both had, they, they, just, they were such iconic you know, stylists on their instrument. But yet, like, immediately recognizable, you know, from one note. You can, you can tell Johnny Hodges immediately. You can tell Charlie Parker immediately, you know, just like, oh, yeah, there's no question. There's no one else who plays like that. There's no one else who plays like Johnny Hodges. So I love thinking about things like this. One of, one of the things that makes so many of these players appealing to me is when it's just, ah, oh, that's just who that is. Sure. Now, I, is it... A, go on. Oh, I just, I was... <laughs> One of the greatest compliments I ever got, actually, was from my buddy Dave Dustman. And uh, I, I was playing a gig in Rochester, and I hadn't lived in Rochester in years. And he was, he was at, with his wife at an Italian restaurant, and I just got hired to play at this Italian restaurant, and I was around the corner. And he said he heard me warming up, just played like three notes, and just put through the mouthpiece on, just through the read on, played like three, just a little bit of... And he said, oh, that's Mike Teitelbaum. <laughs> and he knew that it was me, even though I hadn't been in town in years. You know, that's like he hadn't heard yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, what a great compliment. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I'm now, sorry. What were you asking? As a teacher, how now I, I know that you are very supportive of people coming up with uh, their own sound or trying out experiments. I know that to I in in times past, before in my times before and probably after uh, studying with you in Ithaca for what I did, whatever that 
you know, the, uh, whatever you'd call it, taking your classes and various things like that. Um, I, I remember getting in a little trouble for, uh, trying some things and you were always open to sure, let's do it. Let's, let's get wild. And I know that, I mean, you personally have, you know, you'll write big band charts on, uh, you know, like world war two pizza man incorporating, uh, Greek, uh, elements into big band music and wild stuff like that. How do you balance as a teacher encouraging people to sort of pursue their own voice or their own, uh, let's say intuitive character in their music and also, and also really establish the, the, the history of the music and the tradition and the technical element of it. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a difficult question. And I'm going to give you the same cop out answer uh, about finding balance in your life and in your studies, because I really do feel this way. Um, every now and then I'll be working with a student and I'll just think, man, we just got to put in more time on fundamentals, you know, mm -hmm. like we just got like, and with, with students who are like really good or really creative and, and really have an interesting voice. I'm like, man, we, 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 you need to be able to do this in all 12 keys. Like you, you, you have to, it's, it's one thing to play it in this key, but if you can't play in, in all 12 keys with facility, then you're going to be hamstrung. You're going to be, you know, you're going to have these deficiencies. And sometimes I, I have to rejigger that even, I have to rejigger that broadly as a teacher. Sometimes I have to completely rethink what I'm doing with everybody. And then sometimes I have to rethink with a, with a given student. It's like, we've just spent the last 10 weeks and doing all this creative stuff. And I just realized that you can't, the thing that you just played, you can't play in any other key. <laughs> so sure. that's a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, I like, sometimes I'll hear a student, you know, a student was improvising on something and they were, they were, they were playing uh, one of the, one of the exercises that I had given them. I don't remember which exercise it was, you know, maybe it was like a little um, chromatic enclosure exercise. And, and they did it in a way that made me feel as though it were my, my reaction to it in that moment was that it felt contrived. Mm -hmm. And so my feeling was like, Oh man, we, I gotta, I gotta let you open up a little bit. Sure. <laughs> I gotta let you like, like, like that was, it was, it was great, but it didn't, didn't move me. It didn't like, um, didn't make me feel like you were, in the moment and really creating something. So then sure. I had to sort of rejigger in the opposite direction. Like let's, let's turn off the lights and just try to create something new here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, that seems to me a very uh, responsible teacherly answer too, which is just that it depends on who you're teaching and what their perspective is and what their background is. I hope so. I hope so. Because every now and then I get, jealous of when I hear people talk about like, like super organized method, methodological, is that a word? Sure. Oh, methodological like teachers who have, you're going to be studying with me for four years and here's how we will progress. We will go through this and then we will go through this exercise and then you'll do this exercise. And then for your junior recital and, and you know, that's all. And I, sometimes I'm like, gosh, should I, should I have that? Should I have that level of, of forethought? Uh, should I really be that that organized and that and that planned? And um, so I think there's there's benefits and drawbacks to to my method. 
I think with a guy like you, you know, a musician who's, um, you know, really thoughtful and studious and creative all at the same time, like you could really, you re might really react very well to that kind of approach, but it doesn't work well with everybody. The rigid thing, you mean? Either that or the overly creative thing. Yeah. Sometimes I have to rejigger because, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, I'll have a student who, who doesn't want the rigor, doesn't, doesn't feel like they need it. Sure. And my reaction, and I have to be like, no, 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 you really need to, like, I spent a lot of time making sure that if I could play a song, I could play it in 12 keys. I did not want any key being any less um, facile than any other key. And I really, you know, and Charlie Parker did this too. This is not just me. Like, that's, that's the whole story about the woodshed. He went into the woodshed and played Cherokee in 12 keys. So he could, play, he could you know, and you can sure. totally hear it. He, you know, when it comes time to, you know, like if he has to play a 2-5-1 in concert B, you know, which is A flat on the saxophone. It's a super uncomfortable key. Like he can do it. You know, listen to the song is you, you know, you know, like he can, to like it's right at the, like getting into the bridge. It's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, sure. Maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's at the end of the bridge. I can't remember. Anyway. Um, so, it's, it's, uh, so, yeah. I, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes I think it's good. And then sometimes I have to really like check myself with what I'm doing. And it's, so it's not a, it's not a balance that I have found. It's definitely a balance that I still continue to seek. This may be the theme of this whole conversation is the, is the ever seeking balance. I mean, that, that may be the balance itself is the seek is the seeking of the balance. <laughs> it's the process, not the product. See, I think I probably could have gotten, I think I probably would have benefited from some more of that rigor having done a philosophy degree in undergrad and I just did whatever I wanted to do a lot of the time. That's so, fair. You know, might, might have benefited from some of that, but I, it depends on, I guess it depends on person to person and time to time and everything. But you were inspired too. Like, didn't you know, you went off and you took some lessons with Walter White, right? mm -hmm. someone who had like sort of ridiculous instrumental chops. Uh, Walter was the greatest example of that because he was like on the other end of the spectrum for me. I was like, you know, doing zany stuff and he was like a monster player. I mean, he, I couldn't get away with anything with him. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was like that, that must've, so, so you were, you were, even if you didn't find, if, even if you didn't think it was in balance, I admired the fact that you sought out someone like that, even though, yeah, like his, his style of playing was probably not your style. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't play in his, I assume maybe every right. trumpet player secretly wants to have that kind of thing in their it, bag of tricks. Sort of, but it certainly at the time he was almost the opposite of the way that I thought about playing. Like, I was into Miles Davis and Don Cherry, and he was, you know, he had been playing with Maynard Ferguson. Like it was on the opposite end of the whole thing, you know. But that was the that was the benefit to me of studying with somebody like him is that, um, you know, and it was lucky because Ithaca, except for Ithaca College and and uh, Paul Merrill at Cornell, there wasn't a lot of. It's not like I had the a whole range of, and and I couldn't study with anybody at Ithaca because I wasn't a I wasn't a major really. So it just was a lucky break that he happened to be in town at that given time because who knows, you know. That was the, that was kind of the option, really. But it was great. It was an amazing experience to get to work with them. You know, that's great. Uh, so, how did you end up in New York? So, you went. Did you go from Florida A and M to 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 New York? Yeah. Um, my, I remember actually. So, I was I was there, and I, I this was another one of those moments where I had to sort of make a decision, and I saw, I basically saw two two paths, mm -hmm. and and the, there was the. I saw that I could have stayed at Florida A&M and I could have, you know, like, like for basically for nothing, I could have done a, 
uh, DMA over at Florida State while I was teaching at Florida A&M and gotten tenure and stayed there the rest of my life. Like I could have done that um, because I was an employee of the state of Florida. Like that was a, one option is you could take like up to six credits, uh, you know, at another state school. So, uh, or I could try to be a musician because I realized that I was, I was trying to teach music and I, I felt a little bit fraudulent. I felt okay. like I had a lot of skill on the instrument, but I, I was teaching students. It was a, at Florida A&M. There was a lot of students who were older than me. There was a lot of first time college students. There was a lot of people who had spent time after high school working and then, and then were starting college because they wanted to become band directors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Cannonball Adderley had been at that school and, and you know, there's a great connection to the Adderleys and, and, um, and, you know, he had been a teacher. And I, so I, I felt all these connections. You know, there were, there were students, I was in my 20s and there were students in my 30s who I felt like had more knowledge of life than I had. I was like, I, I'm not sure I can, I can keep doing this um, if, I don't, if I don't have this life experience. You know, I just grew up, I mean, I had hard, I had hard times, but I, I did just kind of just walk right into this job. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I talked to my buddy, uh, a recording engineer, uh, Dave Dustman, who came down and he recorded a recital for me. And, and, um, and we sort of talked about it. And I just remember thinking, yeah, I, I, if I'm going to pursue a life in music, I have to try to go to New York and sort of see what it's like. Sure. And give it a shot. And it's a bold step because you're, you're trading in that instance, you're trading certainty for uncertainty, but that's the move is you wanted to say, all right, well, you, you know, on my deathbed, am I going to want to have, you know, taken the chance or whatever. And in, in retrospect, you know, when I'm now at my age and I look back at all these, these decision points and, and the, and you mentioned risk reward and I, and I look at the, you know, I, I definitely don't make these risk reward decisions lightly. I ha I really think about them a lot mm -hmm. and I think about the risks that I took and I, I wonder, you know, like, did I make the right decision? You know? I'm not, I'm, I'm in no way convinced that it was the wrong decision, but I do wonder like what, what would have happened had I stayed? What, you know, would I have had a different life? And, and I don't know. I mean, my life took so many weird twists and turns after that, that it's just so hard to, it's hard to know, but. Um, yeah. Everybody out, everybody out there listening to this right now, who's, who's about to make it like a radical life decision. It really wants you to say, no, it's the, exactly the right decision. But what's funny is every time I talk to anybody about their kind of the, the, the forks in the road and they choose a path, it feels like no, you never know. You never know if that was the right decision, you know, in the end. Maybe sometimes you do, but it's always up in the air. Who knows, you know? I think the most difficult, I mean, I think there are many decisions that you can make that you could undo that decision later, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, um, there aren't that many decisions that, that are just final that you have no choice about afterwards. It's like, um, you know, you move to New York, it doesn't work out. Well, you could move somewhere else, you know? Right. Um, I, could I have gotten that job back again? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, who knows? But, um, but it's, those are the ones that stick with you because, and because they're so sort of, sort of pivotal, you know I mean? Other than having children, like how many how many decisions in your life really fall into that category? Um, sure. No, I'm I'm I, honestly I I think I think things had to happen the way they happened um, for for me to be happy now. Um, sure. 
because I do, I do think th sometimes like, you know, the, the, the possibility of like a horrific midlife crisis is because you didn't try something that you thought about trying. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I can definitely look back on it and say, did I try to move to Florida knowing absolutely nobody and just taking this job and just to see what would happen? Yeah, I did. Did I then pick up and try to move to New York knowing only a handful of people and find an apartment and just try to make a life as a musician. Yeah, I tried it. Did it work out perfectly? No. Did, was it a complete and utter disaster? No, I was good things happened. And I uh, uh, met some great people and, and had made some great music. And so no, I'm, I, I should be more, I should be more convinced that it was the right call. Actually. Um, it's not that I think it was the wrong decision. It definitely, it was just, sometimes you have to go, you go back and you think, well, what, what would have happened had I made the other, the other decision? Sure. Yeah, what would have happened? Yeah. But that's life. You never know. Right. Yep. There's no way to know. It's fun How to think about though. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> How long are you in New York? See, I moved in 94. I moved up to the suburbs a couple years later, still mm -hmm. sort of staying in the New York area. Um, moved to a different suburb Stayed. I basically stayed in the New York City region until 2008. Okay. So, sure. but you were doing now when you first moved there, you were doing gigs as a saxophonist, writing, were you teaching, teaching gigs? privately, yeah. things like that. Yeah, I was teaching. I taught at the Ethical Culture School. Taught at the Fieldston School. Okay. Um, ethical Culture is on Central Park West. Mm -hmm. Fieldston is their related high school up in the up in the Riverdale. Okay. Um, taught there and uh, got some, yeah, part-time teaching there. And, um, and you were playing Broadway shows and things like that too, right? Just one. I, I didn't, I don't play clarinet. That was the one double that I just never got any yeah. good at. Interesting. It's, it's pretty amazing that you've learned how to play the trumpet. And as a, as an alto saxophonist, you just never wanted to tackle the clarinet. I think I told Emily about the, 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 uh, the lick that made me stop playing clarinet altogether. <laughs> I think I think it's in my Facebook feed. You can probably find it because it still haunts me to this day. What is it? it I, I took a, a three month tour of, of the musical Oliver. Mm -hmm. um, um, Chris McDonald was, was uh, still a friend of mine, wonderful reed player, uh, was on the road for about three months and she needed a sub. She got a different show. And so I wound up meeting the tour halfway and did like three months. And it was um, clarinet, soprano sax. Flute Piccolo, I think, was the book. And uh, and there was a clarinet solo. It was in six flats. It was in E flat minor. And it was like all these pinky stuff. And I would swear I would I would squeak going over the break like half the night. And it was, it was just totally solo. It was just like me. And, and like, <laughs> it was like the end of the tune. And they, the singers had stopped singing. And the lights were dimming. And it was just clarinet. And it was like, boo -da -da -da. Squeak! Oh, it just traumatized me, and I—I I, I swear to God, I have not performed the clarinet since. I may have picked it up like you know three times since then. Man, that's surprising. Given your your diligence on this stuff, I'm. I, it's it's that has to be a real mother of a lick, man. <laughs> I'll send it to you if you want. Yeah, I want to um, hear it now. Oh, it's so, the trumpet always just felt better to me. That's the only, just the only time that sentence has ever been omitted by a human voice. <laughs> <laughs> well what's funny too is actually when i taught um i taught for a couple of years for the paul effman music service uh -huh. and uh for like two years and uh i it was like band in a box you go around all these different schools and it was just easier for me to actually play trumpet 
than to try to like worry about reads. So no matter what class I was teaching, even if I was teaching a flute class, I would just play trumpet along with them. Mm-hmm. So I was wound up for like two years, I wound up playing trumpet, you know, like eight hours a day. And at the end of that, my trumpet chops felt so good. Oh yeah. I was just strong. I was like, I could, <laughs> you know, it felt so good. That's but wild, uh, yeah, not since then. But you did cats anyway. You were playing cats. Oh yeah, cats. So they had there were two books in cats. I subbed for uh, John Cipolla, who mm-hmm. um, wonderful uh, saxophonist. Yep. Uh, subbed for him, and then because I subbed for him, then Ted Nash, who was playing the one of the other books, uh, asked me to sub for him a couple of times. So he was playing. Not and neither of those books had clarinet, so it was like flute, piccolo, tenor, soprano, some combination of those. Sure. So I got the sub. Yeah, but I didn't play any other shows because most shows have have clarinet too. I was just lucky I happened to, to waltz into a situation that i just could play flute piccolo and saxophone sure and were you leading a big band too or did you did you put one together sporadically or what was i your... did yeah a couple of, you know whenever i had the opportunity that wasn't regular like um uh, the bassist neil minor asked me to put together something he was doing like a new music thing at smalls so i put together a big band for that actually that's how i got the cats thing believe it or not was that the cats thing was that um he asked me if I wanted to do something. I was like, ah, I really would like to put my own big band together for this. So I just called a bunch of people. And John Cipolla was one of the people I called uh, to play in my band. I'd never met him before. I just heard his name. And so I called him and we, we just struck up a conversation about, you know, mutual friends and stuff. And after like five minutes, he was like, hey, do you happen to play piccolo? I'm like, yeah, I do. He's like, I can use another sub on the sub list for cats. I was like, okay. <laughs> so because I offered him a gig, he started offering me gigs. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? That's, it is amazing. It's sort of the yeah. New York, it's a New York uh, story in many regards. Yeah. So I how did you play my gig? I think I, he just, he couldn't do it, but I got a oh, gig really? from him instead. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Even better trade. Uh, how did you get from playing music then to, to computer programming? What was that? What was that path like? Cause I know there's a lot of people that, I think it's an interesting story that you went back, you know, you started in music, then you, you went to real job land and then ended up back as a, as the head of the jazz department at Ithaca college. Cause a lot of people, I feel like, you know, this may also be a false dichotomy of you have to either be a professional musician and you're just playing all the time or you get a real job and there's no in between, or a lot of people are really clinging to, to the musical path when, uh, you know, there's any number of possible paths within that world um i am happy to tell you about my path but i'm the first one to say that if anyone aspires to 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 be a college teacher like i am in a million years they shouldn't follow my path (laughs) okay it's totally not the path to take it's not the right i i i was i'm i'm in so many ways so lucky. Um, I mean, not to take anything away from my work ethic and my, you know, as, as hard as I've worked and the things that I've done and and the low times that I've had in my life and how I've, you know, worked myself out of, of of a pretty deep jam, um, through just, you know, blood, sweat, and toil, um, which I think is more important than whether or not my path is a good path. But yeah, so because I had, I had written, I had learned computer programming as a little kid. Um, after I moved, after I got, um, was in New York for a few years and got married and then got divorced and then I needed money, um, like real money. I had, you know, paying child support, you know, in, in the you know, mid to late nineties. Uh, and I, I just was not, I actually asked the, my, my manager, the department head at um, the Fieldston school, like, 
I need full-time hours. And she said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I would love to be able to give you full-time hours. I just can't, I just don't have them to give you. And that's when I realized um, that I just needed, I needed to find a job. I had to, I just needed money. And music was just not going to cut it um, sure. for that immediate need. So I started taking computer class. I, so that's when I got the job working for Paul Effman and that was full-time. And that was, um, it was great, but it was, for me, it was not a perfect fit. It was super exhausting. It was, I'm not a, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have a music education background. So it was actually really difficult for me to work with third, fourth, fifth graders. I didn't have that background, musical background. I had no problem for me teaching the instruments, but mm-hmm. you're talking the school was, it wasn't a great fit teaching at the school, teaching at the, at those schools. Yeah. yeah. I was teaching at like nine schools a week. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so actually what I started doing is I started taking nighttime classes to brush up on my code writing. I just, I, I sort of started playing around with it a little bit again, you know, got a computer and I started doing a little programming. And I was like, I can do this actually. Like, I wonder if I got a programming job. I wonder if I could do better financially and do, and, and have time and energy at the end of the day to make music. That sure, was my thought. Right. Because, yeah, because yeah, yeah. what I realized is that the Paul Effman teaching job, it sapped all my musical energy without giving me any musical satisfaction. Sure. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It was. So um You're also you're doing the computer stuff before it was cool to do the computer stuff. I mean, this is like you're you're like ahead of the game. Up on... to Y2K and and uh and the Y2K computer bug and and then the result. So and there was sort of the dot com stuff all you know bubbling up, and there was a lot sure. of jobs actually out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I lucked, lucked into a job. Um, I didn't luck into it. I, I took it like a year of classes. Did I already tell you this story? I don't think so. Not right now? Yeah. We've no, today. So wrapped up. No, I don't think Sometimes so. I forget. I, so I took like a, a year of night school. I went to a little community college in New Rochelle, near where I was teaching one, you know, and took these classes in, in programming. And I realized very quickly that I was able to get my skills back. And then I was able to sort of take it further and uh, so I was like, yeah, you know, I think I could actually do this. So I, so actually the biggest risk I ever took was um, sometime around like April, you know, towards the end of the school year in, you know, 97, maybe, or 98. I just told my boss, I said, this is going to be my last year. I'm going to find a computer job. But I did not have one yet. This was just, because I, I knew that finding a computer job would be like full-time work. Sure. So I just quit teaching, still needing to pay, you know, child support payments without mm-hmm. another job. That was the biggest risk I ever took. Sure. It reminds my, me of this, my life. There's a Zen saying that goes, leap in the net will appear. That may be one of those instances. I was lucky that it did. Yeah, you know, <laughs> for and, sure. And the first interview I took, I got reached out to a headhunter and he sent me on some interviews. And the first interview I took was with a guy named Andy Denler, whose wife is a choral director actually up in Yorktown, I think. And Andy um, uh, was also a musician. He was a, a he had been he studied voice at Fredonia and he saw something in me, luckily, that even mm. though I had no experience and no computer science degree, this was a little tiny mom and pop company in Westchester, um, that he saw that that I had potential. And and he said, We can hire you, but it's gonna be a, a really low salary. It was probably actually lower than I was making. But I saw that, well, I could do this and I'll work my way up because sure. I can't I, I I can work my way up much faster in this world than I can in um in music teaching right and you never know even where the ceiling is in that in teaching third through fifth grade or whatever or maybe he saw you as being sort of the Thelonious monk of computer programming where you had a different uh a different viewpoint than maybe some of the other people who are doing the same job he he sensed your creativity in the field perhaps 
I don't know how he could, but maybe you're right. Maybe he did. <laughs> I, I mean, I ultimately, I think that it was my, my ability to, to be a creative problem solver that helped me in that business because sure. I would, it was not just my, my ability to learn the coding things I needed to learn and, and learn design databases, but be able to sit in a room with like, you know, like fairly high level business people who said, we have this issue, like we need to have data moved from here to here to here. And there's, you know, like various inputs and outputs and processing and like, and be able to see it and then design a system that could actually do it. Um, that was the tricky part. And I'm sure people get, you know, actually trained in that, but I just had to learn on the job. Sure. So you, so you're now doing this for, for a number of years. What was it that compelled you then to then, did you just reach your breaking point with, with computer programming? Was there an epiphany? Did you see the, the, the holy light before you that told you to return to the saxophone education or how did you end up at the, at Ithaca college as the, as the, the jazz director? I remember your process a little bit, but I don't remember the beginning. I wouldn't have. I didn't know you then. Yeah, I had been to, I had been writing code for a while, and I was I was starting to feel a little stuck in that in that world. I still played music. I still did some writing. I, I would write for various things that would come up. I would still play occasionally, but definitely my chops were rusty for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I was really lucky in that um, I was friends with Nicholas Walker. And Nick Walker and I went way back. We were in middle school together. <laughs> we knew each other from middle school and high school. Yeah. Now, Nicholas Walker for... Exactly. Yeah, go on. I wanted to co cover that real quick for the... For yeah, sure. He was the bass professor at IC. And I knew I had known that. He, you know, he had told me he had this job that he'd gotten up to. And he and I had played together in New York, too. Like, we had played... Um, uh, he, he was a real go-getter. Like, he had... He went over to Tavern on the Green and just basically, like, brought him demo tapes and said, Hey, I got a band. Beef, like I don't even think he had a band. He, he was like, I got a band. He wound up with like a bunch of like club dates, you know, at Tavern on the Greens. It was, it was great. I was, you know, getting gigs. And um, so, so he was on the faculty. And so he knew about this position before it was a, before it was advertised. And, and, and um, so really the only, the only advantage I think that I had was that I was aware that there was going to be a position. Mm -hmm. I, I think originally he thought that maybe they would be able to just like, hire me on his recommendation and it turned out they had to do an actual search but i was sure. the, the the lucky part that i had was that um i just i was aware that there might be a position so i started thinking about it months ahead of time and and then when i actually advertised it then i was able to say okay this is a one-year position i got the, the timing was so lucky it was that it was a, it was only a one year job. You know, Steve was Steve Brown was a previous jazz director was on his terminal sabbatical, so that meant he was going to retire, but they could only hire it as a one year job. So it meant a lot of people wouldn't apply for it who might be looking for full time jobs. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky in that regard. I was lucky that um, you know I had I had some college teaching in my background, even though those skills were a little old, but I definitely had real, you know, I had taught at Eastman. I had taught at Florida a and I had taught at several schools in New York. I had played Broadway shows. So I, I had, I had a decent looking resume, even if some of it looked a little stale. Um, I was lucky enough to get an interview. And mm -hmm. what I knew about myself was if I was lucky enough to get an interview that I was going to nail it, I was going to spend like two months basically, um, sitting at my desk at my computer job, not working because <laughs> I could figure out how to do that. And, um, and just planning my interview. And I, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you were around, were you around? Well, 
I was I was there for the second one. When I showed up, I was at Berkeley for two semesters. When I came back, you were there. So I wouldn't have been there for your interview. I was that semester that you probably interviewed. I was at Berkeley, but I saw your, your second version. Yeah. So I just I I prepared for that interview like I've never prepared for anything in my life. <laughs> you know, and I didn't know what they were going to ask. I basically I prepared like six lectures. I prepared a recital. I prepared an arranging class, an improv class, a jazz ensemble directing thing. I feel like I wound up doing like four out of the six things that I had prepared. So mm -hmm. definitely there was things I prepared that I didn't, but I was, I was so over-prepared for that. I was like, I am going to nail this. They're going to have no choice, you know, to, but to, but to hire me. Cause I was, sure. no, you know, and, um, and then when I, and then I, I remember distinctly driving away uh, from the interview and just going, I, I got this. Well, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, I, 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 or, or, you know, I think what I felt like was my life's about to change now. Mm -hmm. Like things are going to change. And fortunately, you know, Catherine and I had Max. He was, you know, she, she, she had been teaching at NYU, but she had stopped teaching at NYU, and and she was like willing to to take the risk to go up to Ithaca for a year and see what happened. And then we just both fell in love with the place. I had to go through the interview process again for the full time job. Right. That must have been a little nerve wracking. I, I do remember that, but it's got to be tough to defend your what has become your own job from other people. That is not a comfortable place to be. Sure. <laughs> it's not, it's not a, <laughs> um, it's not, no, it's not an easy position. I, 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 I did not always handle myself in a, in a way that was positive or good. I, I regret some of the, the ways I, I handled myself. Um, I, I definitely, um, definitely found it stressful to try to manage um, doing my job and at the same time auditioning for my job because that's what it sure. felt like. Right. But then you, you have to, you're not thinking about teaching. Now you're thinking about teaching in sort of a meta, you're thinking about thinking about teaching or something. I can imagine it's a mess. Right. It's like everything I'm doing there, you know, it's not, it's not about how I audition. It's like they're taking in my entire year's worth of work here. Sure. So, well, you stuck the landing. So there you go. <laughs> After all that, which brings us in some respects, although we'll fast forward a couple years anyway, I don't, I don't want to think about how many years it's been, but uh, we'll fast forward a couple years. Uh, so now we find ourselves having to, we talked a little bit. I'm glad we've gotten to a lot of your sort of educational philosophies here. Uh, but we find ourselves now having to reconceptualize the way we're approaching teaching jazz music, at least for the next couple months while we're all in quarantine here. Um, I've heard that you don't, you're not a big fan of this virus. <laughs> How did you hear that? Because <laughs> I call it the stupid virus in every yeah. uh, you know, social media post. Uh, no, I, yeah, not not a fan. Yeah, and I've, I I thought it was I thought it was I think we're gonna th I think we're really gonna think about this going forward because so much of what we do as musicians we take for granted. One of the things that I, I heard you saying online was that you know it's required that we share the same air. I mean, this is part of our job is you got to be in the same room with people and rehearse and 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 be able to play and practice and everything. And so much of what we do, especially in jazz, I mean, it's different if you're if you're making you know hip-hop music or you're doing you know electronic music or whatever those people have been sitting in their rooms this whole time which is also great it's its own thing but as jazz musicians it's a very live performance kind of an endeavor and something like this really screws up the whole operation 
Um, but especially, I wanted to get your perspective on this for, from a college college viewpoint, because especially there's, there's got to be so many people that this is their this is their senior year and they've been going to school for four years and it's their concert or whatever. But how have you been? Let me ask you this is, is what have you been doing to try to, or what approaches have you taken or what angles are you coming from to try to, to try to be an effective educator, even despite the fact that maybe the core element of the music is now off the table. Let me first just say that being in the same air, I should give credit where credit's due. There's a, there's a saxophone professor who I greatly admire named David Pope at mm-hmm. James Madison University. He's a fantastic pedagogue and, and great saxophonist, both classical and jazz. He's just, he's just um, fantastic. And he's the one who actually said that. And I think he was actually saying that someone else had said it. <laughs> it's been passed down through the ages. Yes. Uh, and he was really worried about Like right at the beginning, he was really worried about it. And he talked about how, just how much he hated you know, teaching online. I think, okay, so when it first happened... It's interesting because we actually, the jazz ensemble, um, who I spend, what, you know, four, five, six hours a week with every week, um, we had just gone through our head chart project where we learned all these tunes by ear. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's a great educational move, too. I love it. What's the one, one sentence description of what that is? Um, learning the music the way it was meant to be learned. All right. <laughs> by <laughs> ear. You know, uh-huh. I have the horn in my hand. I play. A line, they play it back. It's a bunch of chaos until everyone figures it out. And then we, we do that for six weeks until we got a program. But you do a whole concert of big band music that every every part of the music has been memorized. Not a music stand is is on stage or was ever in the room when we yeah. rehearsed it. And you got to get you got to get some credit for the patience required to do something like that. But I think it's important. I hope everybody enjoys it in the end. And I, I, I like the fact that, you know, when you're playing that concert, you know, you have, there's no music stand to hide behind you and the audience it really is a very visceral kind of process i i love the process we got to play it with alexa tarantino and then Mm -hmm. the next week we the right like right before everything closed down it was march 6th we played we we went up to syracuse and played it again with michael philip mossman the trumpet player uh he was the guest soloist there and we we had a great time we played with him and he's so nice and and um already like some students were starting to like had canceled not my students but some of the high school students at that festival had canceled and so that it like it was just starting to like collapse on, on itself yeah i remember that. so we got it so we, we were together a lot in those in those couple of weeks as you know as a jazz ensemble learning all this stuff and really putting it together and fr- you know and the frustrations of memorizing stuff because there's definitely frustrations in like what was my part on that again or like what are my notes and that gets really frustrating sometimes so um so when everything got canceled I, I just jumped in to a project right away. I was like, okay, you know, there's something that we really should be doing. Like we should be doing some of these like overdubbing things because I've done this kind of work before. Someone sends me a, pr- a project in Logic and I have, you know, a halfway decent mic and a decent thing, uh, you know, interface. And I've recorded parts for other people before this way. It's like, this is a skill that everybody should have. So let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. So we did it for like three weeks or so three or four weeks and i said and we have a guest artist who we were supposed to play with vincent DiMartino, who's a fantastic trumpet player and and he's agreed to, to participate too so it basically worked for a while and i think the reason that we're able to do it at all is because we knew each other and we had been in the same air and we had worked together and we had struggled with learning these head charts and everybody knew each other and and I could look at them on a screen just like I can look at you on a screen and 
you and I have played together. We've played a bunch of gigs together. We've been creative together. We've, we've um, eaten meals and, and, you know, been to your wedding, you know, like we're just, we know each other. And that's really meaningful when you make music together. Sure. After a certain period of time, the reality of what this would be like to do in September started to set in. Mm-hmm. And I started, I started worrying that it's one thing to do it like, like this, you know, like I, I'm, I had a jazz theory class, you know, with like eight students and I'm looking at all of them on a zoom screen. And these are all students that have been in my class for now for seven weeks too. And I've worked with them two hours a week and we all know each other and I know who they are and they know who I am. And I, you know, play piano for them and do these little exercises. They're like, Hey, remember that thing we did? We're going to do that again. Remember that? Remember how we did those transcriptions and how we did that analysis. We're going to do that again. And, and so that just, that was fairly seamless. And, you know, it wasn't great, but we can make it work. I'm, I'm actually not sure yet. I'm not saying it can't work in the fall, but I'm worried about it. And I think it's, that's, it's at that point that I lost my energy for it because mm. I lost my energy for it. If, if there's other reasons, there's other personal reasons that my, my time availability just evaporated uh, as well. Sure. But I also started realizing, and I think other people started realizing this too. I saw some posts, this drummer Aaron Stabell in Rochester, who's a friend, mm-hmm. we played with Aaron before. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a, an interesting blog post about this, about I've seen other people write about this too. It's like, how much time was I spending getting wave files from the students and putting them into a project and putting the whole thing together and then getting them to send me videos and then putting the videos together and learning how to use Final Cut and putting the whole video together. I enjoyed it for the first couple of weeks. (laughs) And then after that, I just realized, I'm not sure we're all getting out of this what I'm putting into it. (laughs) You know, Uh, I'm putting a lot of effort into this. The students are putting a lot of effort, but I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if the audience is getting the, the thing out of it that we think we are. And, and then I think as, as, as it started as in the world, I started just, you see more and more and more and more of these things. And it started feeling like this is just not, um, uh, it's just not, it's just not the same anymore. Sure. You know? Yeah. So I'm, so I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about how it's going to, going to work. I'm not, so the the truth is, Bobby, I would like to talk to you again in October once we've had a chance to sort of reevaluate how this is all working because i'm I'm not yet sure how we can make it work in an environment where I don't know somebody or I haven't sure. read the same error as them. Right. Well, let's do it. I'll hold you to it in <laughs> October. We'll see how we'll see how it all goes. Hopefully we find out that, you know, a, a mixture of uh, Guinness and Ovaltine just cures it outright or something like that and it goes away, you know, but yeah. I saw I something was... I saw something in the paper today that someone suggested the possibility of, of a 410 solution where as long as nobody was in the building who was high risk that um, I don't know the exact, I have to read the article again, it was in the New York Times, it was like you could do four days on, 10 days off. So that everybody who gets it while they're in there gets has to. So know. that basically, what you do is you're 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 in class for four days. You do all the, you wear masks and everything, and, and sort of minimize it. But then you quarantine for the next ten days, and then you repeat the cycle again. And there was there was some there was some science 
Science. Sure. I'm sure there's all science, science all over it. There was science as to why that yeah. could work, how sure. that could work. Mm -hmm. And I could, that, that I could see some possible variant of that working, you know, like, okay, we rehearse for a week and then we take a week where we do something else where, mm -hmm. okay, you, you know, you send me, you send me a little recording. I check it out. I give you some feedback, you know, um, and then we meet, we meet again in the next week that could work. There, there's some variant of that I, I could see. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, sure. Well, well, we'll wrap this up here pretty quick. So I, I know you, you know, you gotta, um, you know, taking, uh, appreciate you, you taking the time. I do think that there's an element too with this music that it's, you know, you can have something online and see it, but there's nothing like, and especially I think in jazz and improvised music, being in a room and hearing people invent one minute's music in one minute's time. I mean, there's no way you can, you can go on Facebook and see there's a live stream and scroll through it in two seconds and, you know, whatever. But what I will say is if there's one thing that's a, in my mind is a positive on this is it's going to force us to be creative. It's going to be one of these moments where, you know, limitation breeds creativity. And it is a benefit that all the musicians are learning how to use their recording software and we're figuring out how to, you know, operate online. And in many ways, I mean, we're jazz musicians. I think, you know, we're, we're making a living blowing air through a tube still. A lot of this stuff is pretty old school. So we're not always the, mo I mean, you, 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 yourself excluded. We're not always the most tech savvy people in the world. So this is one of these opportunities to try to figure out how to work around it. But I'm sure that over the next two months of meditation on the subject, you will find breakthroughs of ways to deal with it, regardless of how we end up in September. Yeah, I hope so. And Nicholas Walker actually just called me a couple of days ago, and, and he and I are going to brainstorm. So I, I, I know the funny thing is that theoretically, like this is why we're talking. But the truth is, is that I don't have the answer yet. But that's the that may be the answer in itself. Maybe the process is the answer. <laughs> Thank you for, for using my own words against me. <laughs> Maybe that's it, man. That's the theme of the conversation. We figured it out. The process is the product. That's it. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate you. I uh, appreciate you doing this, man. Bobby, I miss you so much. And I miss uh, you too. Soon as this is over, let's do. Let's, man. Let's make music again. I'm about it. I'll come. I'll come up to Ithaca. We'll do. We'll play some shows for real people in real time. It'll be amazing. Yeah. Let's do. Let's do something in the backyard. We. I, so need to do one of our backyard. I don't think you ever got to do of our backyard potlucks, but it's no, unfortunately. But I heard about it. I was going to ask you about music, music because music, but that's that'll. I'll save that for October. Next time. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Absolutely. Take care, man. I'll I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, gang. Well, that was a lot of fun. Mike Titlebaum, always a fountain of wisdom and positivity, even despite. Adverse global conditions. <laughs> All right. I hope everybody had fun. If you'd like to keep up with the show, uh, follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash podcast. You can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Music. Almost forgot it there. Oh, boy. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman. Uh, we're going to keep working on putting some of these up in other places. We're gonna, we got a YouTube page. It's just a matter of editing some of these uh, videos down. So keep an eye out for that and uh, keep an eye out for the other platforms. And uh, come back next Thursday for another educational and antimicrobial episode of Jazztopia. All right, gang, everybody stay safe. Have a nice time. Listen to some good music. Send some money over to the, uh, the musician relief efforts. And I'll catch you next week. All right, see ya.